This is an EM Pulse Heartbeat with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Welcome back to EM Pulse. Wow, what a month. I feel like I say that all the time, and I think that this is my song that never ends. <laughs> is it only two weeks since we last published? I mean, I feel like it's been at least a month. You know, Sarah, that might be because we both spent much of the last two weeks in either isolation or quarantine. Yeah, for sure. That definitely contributed to my warped sense of time. And it definitely got me thinking about COVID and kids. And fortunately, there is an article hot off the JAMA Open Press on the severe outcomes of kids with COVID. So I interviewed Dr. Nathan Cooperman about the publication. Dr. Cooperman is a founding member of PERN, the Pediatric Emergency Research Network, and he sits on the executive committee. He also happens to be the chair of emergency medicine here at UC Davis. So, Nate, welcome back. It's great to have you again on EM Pulse. And today we're going to talk about PERN. So what is PERN and why do we need this type of collaboration? PERN stands for the Pediatric Emergency Research Network. It is a global consortium of pediatric emergency care networks around the world. As you know, the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network, or PCARN, is our domestic Peds Emergency Care uh, Research Network, but there are five or six PCARN-like networks around the world that do similar work as we do, but focused on their countries. There are some illnesses, however, that you need big numbers because the outcomes, the severe outcomes, are uncommon. So to identify predictors of severe outcomes, you need really big sample sizes, bigger than one network can provide. And also, when it's a global problem, you want to make sure that your predictors or your findings are generalizable. That is, they're appropriate in Bakersfield, Barcelona, and give me another B-town, Buenos Aires, Argentina. And uh, so the global network is needed both for the size of the study that we needed and also to make sure that the results are applicable around the world. How did this get started? What was the original inspiration? Actually, it was, it's, it's sort of a, a funny story that I'll, I'll say briefly. First of all, PCARN and its sister networks around the world, we've been around for 20 years. PCARN started in 2001. PERC, the Canadian, started in the 90s. PREDICT, the network in Australia New Zealand, started around 2006. So we had all been around for a while, but um, one of my good friends and collaborators from Canada, Terry Klassen, who was one of the founders of PERC, he hosted a global summit on child health research in Amsterdam in 2009. And just by chance, it coincided with the outbreak of H1N1, or the flu epidemic. And all of us around the, the world were struggling with the question, two questions. First of all, of all the children presenting with influenza-like illness toward EDs, who had H1N1? And then, more importantly, what were the predictors of adverse outcome, because in a resource-limited world, particularly in the middle of a pandemic, you need to know how to focus your resources, both your human resources and your other material resources. So we were in this middle of this meeting of uh, Global Child Health in Amsterdam. There were 30 of us gathered around a table. We were instructed to each bring a bottle of wine from our home countries. So I had a bottle of wine from Sonoma and 
actually, I was introduced to a great bottle of wine from New Zealand called Cloudy Bay, and we were sitting around the table, and um, we were talking about H1N1, and we thought, wow, we really should do a study together to identify those two questions. Who's got it, and what are the risk factors for adverse outcome? So the next two days, we sequestered ourselves away and created a protocol to do a retrospective case control study. And that actually resulted in an important publication in the British Medical Journal around predictors of severe outcome of H1N1 in children, very useful for the EM community. And that was the birth of PERN. And here we are 13 years later in another pandemic. Uh, And it's not the end of PERN, but it's an interesting bookend that we are podcasting today, given that birth of PERN. So from one pandemic to another, here we are. And the latest publication from PERN is in JAMA Open and is titled Outcomes of SARS-CoV-2 Positive Youths Tested in Emergency Departments, the Global PERN COVID-19 Study. And in this study, the team asked the question, what proportion of COVID-positive youth had severe outcomes within 14 days? So why were we studying this? Why did this need to be studied on an international scale? And what did you do to answer the question? So we realized we really did need the numbers that would be provided in a global patient audience. But also importantly, we had an ongoing study in PERN being led by Todd Florin and myself. And actually, I do want to shout out, there are four leads of this particular study that we're talking about. I want to make sure they get their due credit. Dr. Stephen Friedman and Anna Funk from Alberta and uh, Todd Florin at Northwestern at Lurie Children's and myself were the sort of four leads of this study. But we already had an ongoing study in PERN of pneumonia. And Todd Florin and I are leading that study. And we had the framework and the infrastructure already in place, a study of 2,500 children with pneumonia. And then Dr. Friedman from Calgary, from Alberta, approached us and said, hey, COVID is happening and we need to identify these risk factors. We already have a framework. Why don't we write a grant and build it on top? And we thought, ah, Stephen, that's a great idea. So uh, Dr. Freeman got a big grant from the Canadian Institute of Health Research. I got one from UC Davis. And Todd got grants from Cincinnati Children's where he was and at Lurie Children's where he is. And we started the study. And the study involved about 40 hospitals in Pern representing eight countries. And as I mentioned, you know, PERN uh, is this consortium, and I'll tell you the the major networks that uh, our participants in PERN include PREDICT, which is in Australia, New Zealand, PERC, which is in Canada, REPEM, which is in Europe, there's a network in Spain, there's a network in South America, and those are kind of the major contributing networks into uh, to PERN. So there were eight countries and about 40 EDs that wanted to participate. We needed about 10,000 children who presented to the ED with COVID-like symptoms to get the necessary sample of children who actually did have COVID, which we needed around 3,000. So that's how we devised it. And what made our this study different than other previous pediatric COVID studies is that the previous pediatric studies, they were typically from registries. So they were gathered retrospectively and There's all these potential confounding factors when you gather things retrospectively, like were the outcomes already known when people put in the predictors and things like that. There had been studies in ICUs, which, of course, is going to give you a much higher adverse uh, outcome rate. But there hadn't been a prospective observational study of children walking into the ED at risk for COVID to identify 
the risk factors for adverse outcome. And that's where this particular study fit in. So we enrolled 10,000 children, sure enough, got 3,200 children with SARS-CoV-2 infection, so COVID. Importantly, they were segregated into two groups. About 20% of them needed to be hospitalized immediately because they were ill-appearing, and we looked at the adverse outcomes of that group, and there were about 2,500 children who actually were well enough to be discharged. Overall, out of the 3,200 children studied, both inpatient, outpatient, 3.3% had a serious adverse outcome. And importantly, compared to other studies as well, some studies have talked about ICU admission is an adverse outcome, but those sorts of um, findings are relatively subjective where you put patients you know, in the ICU or the ward, et cetera. So we looked specifically at severe outcomes that we would get no pushback on. So development of sepsis, airway intervention, positive pressure ventilation, death, drainage of an empyema. So we looked at severe outcomes that either required an intervention or that nobody would uh, argue with, septic shock, bacterial meningitis, et cetera. So those were our definition of adverse outcomes. All comers with COVID, 3.3% had an adverse outcome. However, importantly, of the 20% that were admitted at that index ED visit, about 14% had adverse outcomes. But of those that were well enough to discharge, only 0.5% had an adverse outcome. And finally, what I'll say about those two, and then we can talk about the, the predictors, is the ones that were hospitalized immediately, as I mentioned, 14% or so had adverse outcomes. There were a total of four deaths. Of the children who were discharged, 0.5% had adverse outcomes, but nobody died. So let's talk about which kids were more likely to have severe outcomes. So we did what's called a multivariable analysis in which we looked at a lot of factors at the same time to see which were the important factors that predicted a serious outcome. And what we found was, first of all, older age in that pediatric age group. That is, children between 5 and 18 were at greater risk than young children of having adverse outcome. And that was different than some other studies which have identified young patients, and we can talk about that in a second. In addition, patients more likely to have adverse outcomes had pre-existing chronic illnesses similar to adults with bad outcomes uh, in COVID, a previous episode of a documented pneumonia, and interestingly, children who presented a bit later to the ED, that is four to seven days into the course of illness, those children were more likely to have an adverse outcome than children who presented in the first few days of illness. And then finally, since this is a multinational study, there were certain countries that had less and greater risk of adverse outcomes. So both Canada and Spain had a decreased frequency of adverse outcome compared to the United States, and Costa Rica had a significantly higher uh, risk of adverse outcomes. So those were the important findings of the study. And you mentioned the babies. Why do you think you didn't see the same kind of trends in the in the really young kids? The main reason is the studies that had identified young children as at greater risk, their outcome definition of severe COVID was you know, admission to an ICU, but they might have just admitted the child to the ICU because they were nervous. It's a young child with COVID. In fact, our study looked at ones that really needed ICU care, needed interventions and whatnot, and it was very clear that the older children were at greater risk. And one thing I'll, I'll mention, because this kind of comes up all the time, 
As you know, MISC is a phenomenon in COVID, right? Multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children. The typical age, the peak age is between 5 and 10, epidemiological studies have shown, and was similar in our group. We identified there was 50 cases of MISC, about a third of them had adverse outcomes, but they were also typically in that 5 to 10-year age bracket. You also mentioned kids with comorbidities, the same as adults with comorbidities, being at higher risk for adverse outcomes. What about healthy kids with no pre-existing conditions? Were we still seeing these adverse outcomes in those kids? We did, much less commonly. But uh, interesting, that other factor that I mentioned, the children that presented four to seven days into their illness they were the ones that were at greater risk than the ones uh, that presented in the first few days. And again, since this is not a randomized trial, we're not looking at causation, we're just looking at associations, but it's likely that those children who present at four to seven days, they're into their course of illness and they're just not getting better, and then they present to the emergency department, as opposed to children who present early on where you know the parents uh, are nervous, the child's got what looks like COVID, and they want the child checked out. And again, reassuring to our clinical judgment for those children who were discharged home, only 0.5% had adverse outcome and no deaths. So you can sort of follow your judgment on, on those patients and be reassured that they do well. But the patient that presents later on in their course of illness, and again, of course, the older child and those with comorbidities, those are the ones that you have to pay closer attention to. So here we are now in an Omicron surge. We're seeing a huge wave of patients. I saw you in the ED yesterday, and we're very busy with COVID these days. How is this changing your practice with kids with COVID? Right, you know, and Sarah, you actually kind of said something that just resonates, particularly now as we are surging. And in California, we're going to be surging for at least another couple of weeks. As we become more and more crowded it sort of becomes a little bit more, I hate to be you know, overly dramatic, but a little bit more like battlefield conditions where with limited resources, and as you know, we have limited human resources as providers are ill with COVID, we need to know which children do we need to focus our resources, human resources and material resources on. And these predictors help us focus on uh, the children that are at greater risk and again, the children that look well and don't have these risk factors, we can be reassured. We can send them home, have close follow-up, and they do well. So that's how the results of this are pertinent. And particularly right now, as we are surging and are facing greater and greater challenges of sifting through the large number of patients to identify those at greatest risk. So if you had to say some of the major red flags that you see that would make you think, okay, I think this kid needs to be admitted. Right. So there's certainly the the obvious stuff, right? That that's the hypoxic child who's uh, you know struggling uh, has respiratory distress. But I am going to be focused on the older child because they're certainly at greater risk, and those with chronic conditions. I'm also interested, and I focus on the five to ten year old because that's the child that's at greatest risk for MISC. Although you know we see MISC all the way up to young adulthood. Actually, it's called. MISA for adults and, and young adults, but really it's that, you know, eight to 10 year old. So that is how I have changed my practice and I would recommend others too. That is, you know, the older child with a history of chronic illness, pay close attention to that child. Doesn't mean that they need to be admitted, but you just got to make sure that they have no other signs because they're at greater risk. The five to 10 year old scrutinized for MISC and certainly anyone overtly who's showing, you know, hypoxia, 
uh, respiratory distress, they are going to be uh, admitted. And those were, by the way, respiratory symptoms and fever. 75% of the children in this study um, had those findings. So, Nate, now I'm going to ask you to pull out your crystal ball. (laughs) (laughs) I know you have been studying COVID very intensely for the last two years since it's been out, really, both at a clinical level. We've obviously been seeing lots of it, but you've been doing a lot on the research side as well. What are your predictions for what our future is going to look like with COVID? Yeah, wow. First of all, I love Dr. Fauci. I'm a believer. I'm a believer in science. And having said that, I'm just going to make educated guesses based on my reading and and the research I do. First of all, not going away anytime soon. Although this Omicron surge, if you look at the data from South Africa, from the UK, you know, here in California, probably within a few weeks, we're going to be on the the downside from Omicron. But three things are going to be super important for the foreseeable future for us is that we all stay boosted. Several of the major companies are making a vaccine that's geared towards Omicron. We have to mask while we're indoors, and it's N95s all the way in the clinical setting for sure. You know, in the supermarket, I'm still just with a surgical mask and home testing because, in my mind, that is the only way we have. And we know that the rapid tests, the antigen tests, they're still they're good for Omicron. For the foreseeable future, those three things we have to do to kind of bring life to quote-unquote normal. And I guess that's um, echoing what others have said is that in my mind, as long as you are immunized, we have to kind of incorporate this into sort of our daily lives to try to resume normal living. Hopefully, we'll get the vaccine down to six months of age soon, because I know you know people with young children, that is, a, that is a serious quandary. But then otherwise, as long as we mask while we're indoors with a lot of other people, we maintain our vaccine status and get the boosters that are virus-specific when they're available. And when we're going to have a gathering with friends, which I do— I don't gather with 30 friends, but I gather with 10 friends. The given is everyone's fully immunized. And you know what? We do a rapid test before we meet and try to live our our normal lives. So that is what I would say would be for the foreseeable future. And then hopefully within the coming year, this fades into the background and becomes part of our uh, regular existence and to a much lesser level. And in the meantime, no other nasty variant appears which unfortunately is a risk until we get the world immunized. And yes, we all need to be immunized to resume kind of normal societal function. And fortunately, unfortunately, back to Pern, because this you know, was a study of uh, global collaboration. We live on a small planet, and we in the United States will never be immune from COVID unless we fully immunize our African neighbors and our South American neighbors and the whole planet. So we have to dedicate our resources to the world so that we can all resume more normal lives. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And I do think it's wonderful that we have PERN and that PERN was already set up in order to do this and track this data. And I'm sure you have plenty of other things that you're tracking as well. So we look forward to talking about more studies and more results in the future. Yeah, Sarah, let me just say one last thing about that. You know, this study is a big study, and we're submitting abstracts to, you know, the results aren't out yet. But we followed children all the way to three months out because we're also going to identify risk factors for long COVID in children. Uh, so that's really important. Actually, abstract was already submitted to SAEM. And then we are looking at factors that will predict infiltrates in children uh, with 
COVID-like symptoms because we don't want to x-ray everybody, but we'll be able to identify those that need x-ray. And finally, we're studying infants younger than three months with COVID because, as you know, we have these febrile infant prediction rules. You and I have podcasted about that, and we want to make sure in the COVID era that the rules still work. And the early indications, not from our work, but from other small studies, it looks like their CBCs and inflammatory markers look like other viral illnesses. So our bacterial prediction rules hopefully will still work, but we actually have a large cohort of babies with COVID in this study as well. And uh, some other time, invite me back and we can talk about COVID babies. That sounds great. These are all super important questions. So yeah, I look forward to hearing what you guys find. Well, that is certainly an interesting perspective. I have thought for a while we're going to have to expect a new normal. I do think it's a positive thing that we now have a better approach to things like hand washing, mask wearing, and avoiding sick contacts, though. Yeah. And, you know, we mentioned at the beginning of this episode that we were both personally impacted by COVID. And I think there's some benefit to sharing what we've learned. Yeah. (laughs) You would have thought I would have learned by now. (laughs) So we actually have been pretty dang cautious for the last two years. And this Christmas kind of gave in and had a family event in Southern California. You probably (laughs) can guess the rest of the story from there. But in one fatal moment of decision making, uh, we sat down at a lunch without masks while eating, obviously, and uh, we brought home COVID to Northern California. The good news was that we were okay. You know, I only experienced a small amount of headaches and congestion and definitely had a cough associated with it. But since my husband got it first, we decided that he would isolate in our room And I would be out with the kids who went on to school per our district's protocol, and we tested the kids daily because, well, we have the space in the house, testing availability, and frankly, I wanted the kids to go to school. (laughs) But I got it next, and so we actually swapped out, and I isolated in our room, and he was outside with the kids after um, a short time period in isolation himself. So it was a long 10 days in isolation for sure. You know, we tested and antigen tested repeatedly throughout it and remained incredibly positive. (laughs) So we didn't get to come out early. But we were wearing an N95 in our own house during those second set of five days. And let me tell you, that sucks. But Our kids never missed any school, and the awesome thing is is they never got COVID. It was certainly very hard isolating away from the kids, and as I said before, wearing a mask in your own home really sucks. And really, one of the hardest parts was feeling like a complete heel contracting COVID in the midst of a very busy month in the emergency department. But the hardest part was figuring out the right thing for our family. Should our kids have gone to school, even though the school said that they could? Was it worth it to isolate in our rooms and cause all that stress when the complications in kids with COVID are rare? And I completely recognize not everyone has the space, access to testing, or luxury of resources that we have. It was really a lot of hard decision making. And I feel really well equipped. Yeah, you had a bit of a worse time than I did. Ours was actually a bit of a surprise. Um, We were testing my kids the Sunday before school was about to start. 
And my youngest ended up popping positive with no symptoms. And of course, we had spent that day outside at the snow, hanging out with cousins. So I was worried that, you know, we could have just spread it to everybody. But luckily, he never had any symptoms. None of us ever got it. The cousins never got it. And as far as I know, it ended with him and didn't spread anywhere. (laughs) We definitely tested. We quarantined in the house as well. And, you know, as luck would have it, I had actually used vacation time for that week because six months ago when we put in our vacation requests, we had hoped to go somewhere over Christmas. (laughs) But that definitely didn't happen. So at least I wasn't scheduled to work. So we all quarantined at home and um, got through it without any symptoms. And I got back to work in time to, uh, to get to my next shift. Yeah. So even though only one of you was positive, you guys all quarantined in your own home. We did. My six-year-old's a bit of a tornado, and so there was no way that we could have (laughs) isolated him from the rest of the group. So we just figured that was the safest thing. And as I said, my husband wasn't working this week, and I had vacation time. So really, it was just about keeping my other child home as well, and he was happy to do that. Well, that was a lot of sharing. (laughs) I hope that this is helpful to others out there that are struggling with these types of decisions. I'm not saying these are the right decisions or the only decisions that are out there. Everybody has to make decisions for themselves. And we recognize that there are a lot of factors that go into this. You know, we were all boosted. We were able to get testing on a regular basis and have support systems in place to be able to quarantine easily. So that made it easier for us. But that's not true for everybody. These are serious challenges. And uh, we appreciate what you guys are all going through and what you're doing for our community. So thank you, guys. Yeah, and I agree. I truly believe that the reason that the rest of us never got it and that my son had zero symptoms was because he had recently been vaccinated. And I think he had antibodies ready to go. And those little antibodies just coated the virus. And he had such a low viral load that he never even spread it. So we were really lucky that way. But I know watching the numbers climb and watching Omicron peak across the country and at different rates in different states, there is a lot of COVID out there. So as Julia said, you know, do what you can, and we we respect what you're all going through. I do think there are some lights on the horizon. Our vaccination rates are climbing. There's an Omicron-specific vaccine that's on the way out. We have some antivirals that are looking promising. Um, so I hope that we are all on the way to a better tomorrow. Preach it. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you to all of our listeners for everything that you do. Let us know if you have ideas for our podcast. Email us at eimpulse at gmail.com or head us up on social media at eimpulsepodcast. And we're looking for your stories. You women in emergency medicine, we want to hear your unique experience about what it's like to be a woman in emergency medicine. So let us know at Podcast. The best way you can show your support for our podcast is to tell others about it. Like it, review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And thank you to our department for covering for so many of the physicians while we were out with COVID. Yes, thank you to whoever took my last two night shifts. (laughs) And thank you to OM Audio Productions for quarantining with me. See you all next time.